0: Hello and welcome to this installment of the Primordia Podcast, your source for strange. I am very excited to share this episode with you all. Um, it's something that I have been looking forward to for a while. And so, um, yeah, I'm glad it came to fruition. This episode that I'm sharing with you all is a collaboration between yours truly, the Primordia Podcast, Flood with XV Planets, as well as dave and amy over at unearthing paranormalcy <Tanzig> uh, yeah but before i go off on a fan tangent about those two groups and how excited i am to work with them let's showcase another show from the green mushroom podcast network so what's up it's a sex positive comedy
1: show your parents forgot to warn you about I will be a delightful host, Jeep Weird, and with me are my three very sexy friends. I'm Captain Spanks,
2: drop an anchor. It's a I Spanker!
1: A I am Raven Gunnigan, and I'm about
3: to eat sixteen oh, feet of Nerds rope.
2: And I'm Luxa, and that is all you get to know about me. <laughs> <laughs> Join us for a ride full of twists and turns as we explore the rabbit hole that is I human sexuality.
1: I, Smuts Up Crew, would like to propose.
2: Oh my god, he's proposing. Question. Get down on your Arsten. fucking knees. <laughs> oh if you're curious about expanding
0: your horizons or getting more comfortable in your own skin, then the Smuts Up Podcast is for you. Or maybe you're just a horny nerd or a person who enjoys outdated references. The Smuts Up Podcast is fun for the whole step family. I'm going to say
2: the B word <laughs> butthole sunning. <laughs>
0: If you were to put a hot dog in it, is it a sandwich? I I don't know.
2: Is a bread dilder with a hot dog inside it a sandwich? Write to us at smutsup69 at gmail.com and let us know what you think about
0: that. Available on your favorite podcast apps.
1: I put a D20 in my mouth.
0: Nailed it. All right. Awesome. If you guys are not familiar with Smuts Up, I definitely recommend giving that podcast a listen. And I can guarantee that you will be laughing during and after the episode. Alright, so before we get started, as usual, um, I will keep housekeeping items for this episode very brief, but I do want to let you guys know that I have stocked up some more spooky bone jewelry and other things in the Etsy shop, so go check that out if you are interested. Uh, The Ko-Fi page is live, and that is going to be our alternative to Patreon for the time being, so if you're interested in joining a membership tier as low as $1 a month, definitely check out our Ko-Fi page as well, and I will link that for you in this episode description as well as in the regular showcase notes. I'd also like to let you all know that the first annual Camp Strange will be taking place at the end of this month. The dates for Camp Strange will be announced within a week, so please stay tuned for that. I'm very excited to roll this out for you all, and I hope that you guys all would like to participate or listen um, or just have a blast. It is going to be several days worth of episode releases um, in a camp-like format so sort of like a virtual spooky camp so if you're interested definitely drop us a message let us know if you would like to be a special guest on maybe a bonus episode or something I definitely still have time to throw one of those in so yeah without much more bullshitting let's go ahead and jump into the episode and we are going to go ahead and let Flood take over as the group host and I really hope you guys enjoy
1: I guess here we are, the spookier side of the mushroom. Am I right, folks?
2: It is the spookier side.
1: (laughs) So uh, I'm really happy to be here with Primordia Unearthing Paranormalcy. We are the trio of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network that really leans more into the paranormal, oddity, and uh, supernatural side of things. And I thought there was no better way to kick off spooky season than hanging out with you guys for a night and sharing some of our favorite personal hometown ghost stories. What do y'all think? Sounds
0: awesome. I'm so ready for this. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just kidding.
1: (laughs) I don't know. Go on, go on. You got the mic. Um, (laughs) We need more music. I mean, I can feed that in later, but if you want to supply it now, make that happen. No, this uh, this is great. Like um, all of us share this uh, genuine interest for the spookier side of things as well as how it feeds into the occult side of things. I think that's what kind of makes us all stand apart from um, your standard paranormal podcasts. is there's a lot of crossover there. Uh, and I think there's a I think there's there's a lot to be learn from each other in the process of that. But before we go barreling off into our own goofball stories, uh, I would like to take the opportunity for everybody to introduce themselves. So, um, Britt, if you don't mind, you want to start off?
0: Oh, put me on the spot. Um,
1: I did. <laughs> and everybody <laughs> well, I- is welcome to do the same to me. Bring it on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, I am Britt of the Primordia podcast, your source for strange. Um, I love Spooky shit. I'm, I've always been a slut for spooky season. Anything scary. Um, I've been investigating the paranormal since I was like, I don't know, thirteen. Crazy. I um, and I w- I went to college in St. Augustine because it was a ghost town. <laughs> Literally picked my college based on the paranormal activities surrounding it. <laughs> Uh, and I am a, a practicing, I consider myself, a, I'm just going to say fringe, which, cause I don't really fall into any specific category. I just kind of do my own thing. Um, so yeah, that's, that's me.
1: I can relate to that. Amy, how about you?
0: Well, I am Amy.
2: I am one-third of Unearthing Paranormalcy, which is the podcast that digs into the paranormal and tries to find normalcy in the topic.
1: And one of my personal favorites that I've discovered over the last couple of years, by the way. Love you guys.
2: Oh, thank you. We love you, too. Um, Uh But we, well, like Brit, I've been drawn to the paranormal my entire life. I grew up in an extremely haunted house, you know, the type of place that you had activity if not daily, at least three or four times a week and not little things, either like big things like chairs moving across the kitchen and lawnmowers mowers being pushed out in the yard by themselves, things like that. So I've always been really into the paranormal. And one night Dave and I were sitting in bed and we were like, you know, we should do a podcast. He's like, well, what do you want to do a podcast over? And I was like the paranormal and we literally started that night. We went and bought some $10 headsets from Walmart and recorded our first podcast on a ancient Acer netbook and <laughs> our sound quality sucked for many many weeks, but we've done it. And
1: it's There funny. is there is a hell of a learning curve there, am I right?
2: Oh, yes, especially <laughs> when you have no audio background whatsoever. <laughs>
0: You guys are literally the reason why I got into this also. If I haven't said that enough, like, I love you guys so much. I love you. You've got a, a huge fan ba- base here. so. Well, we yeah. love
2: you, too.
1: Yeah, definitely. You are definitely my people, and I'm hoping we're actually going to be able to get to do an investigation together.
2: That sounds awesome.
1: Yeah. Now, tell me all about Dave.
3: <laughs> I'm Dave. I study occultism. Uh, including Neoplatonism, Hermeticism, Mythology, Legend, Lore, and Spiritual Paths from all cultures over the course of time. Comparative Mythology and Religion is one of my top interests. In addition to digging into the origins of unexplained phenomena.
1: Phenomena. 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 You started it. Dave, you were probably the only one of us That actually had a prepared intro So bravo to you, my friend (laughs) Well, thank you
2: He always comes prepared That's why he is the backbone of our show (laughs)
1: Because if it
2: wasn't for Dave It would be Chad and I sitting here Making off-the-cuff Inappropriate age 12 sex jokes So... (laughs)
1: That's that's why I've had to bring on this whole revolving door group of people is to help keep me anchored because otherwise it (laughs) will definitely devolve into um, yeah, territory. (laughs) Anyway, so uh, the whole reason we decided to get together tonight, oh and I'm Flood, host of XV Planis. I chase ghosts and aliens and uh, apparently they chase me too. Um, So the whole purpose of this was to start talking about some of the reasons that we got involved into this line of work, if you will, or at least this line of thought and kind of touch on some of the, uh, the epic true ghost stories, if you will, of where we all grew up. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Where did everybody actually grow up? What, what is your hometown? Mine technically is Natchez, Mississippi. I claim New Orleans is my home because that's the town that I came unto myself, um, or became myself that I most associate with, but I grew up in Natchez, Mississippi. And that's where I had my first couple of paranormal experiences, actually. What about the rest of you?
2: Well, Dave and I both grew up in Norman, Oklahoma, the buckle of the Bible belt. So it's been a, it's, you know, Paranormally, paranormal stuff is very taboo around here. So, that's one of the other reasons why we jumped into this was so that we could talk about it with people who were like minded and not feel like you're being told that, you know, we're going to hell or that we've been chased by demons. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I definitely well, you still
1: might not. be, but at least it makes it more interesting.
2: Exactly. Right? At least we can <laughs> find other people who are also being chased by demons. So, <laughs> 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 And our busload for hell is going to be awesome. <laughs>
1: Now, Britt, where did you grow up at?
0: Uh, well, I grew up in little old Live Oak, Florida. Um love
1: that Southern Twang, by the way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> in the Deep South. Um, that was my little Nikki reference there. Um
1: The Deep South. <laughs>
0: yeah. Exactly. Um, but yeah, you know, Florida's armpit and um paranormal stuff was pretty taboo where i grew up um i had a lot of experiences in the house couple of houses that i grew up in i felt like it was more connected to the land and there might have been some like alien shit that happened i don't know if really? it were dreams or repressed memories but yeah
1: Oh, now i got to pick your brain on that <laughs> okay well maybe we can say that one for later so who wants to uh who wants to share their their first hometown ghost story i got a few up my sleeve i don't know if you guys do as well but oh yeah we do yeah um go for it dave
3: all right you know we've we've all been at this a long time and there's a few common tropes when it comes to urban legends across america crybaby bridges and hitchhiker ghosts (laughs) so when i was going to high school There were rumors of at least four of these crybaby bridges around our town. But the one I have seen the most information about is just a mile east of Sooner Road on southeast 134th Street. This is Air Depot's southern run from Midwest City. And there sits a broken and abandoned bridge a little ways along the old dirt road. And long ago, a mother was driving over it during a terrible storm with an infant in tow. The bridge gave way under the car's weight, and both Mama and Baby died in a horrific crash. The wreck wasn't discovered until days later when a patrol car was cruising by. The bridge has never been repaired, and according to legend, those who stand on or near the bridge will hear the cries of the baby, sometimes accompanied by the sharp sound of wood splintering and steel being mangled and tangled. The cries start softly, then grow louder and louder, until it's all you can hear over the trickling water and rustling branches at the overgrown site.
1: Why we are not recording this while we're sitting around a campfire together is beyond me. No. That's a good one, man. That's you know, interesting. We're finally,
2: cool enough here, we can totally sit out at our fire pit now, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so uh, that's that's from y'all's hometown, yeah.
2: Yeah, just mm-hmm. a couple of miles north of where we're at right now.
1: You ever gone to uh, investigate it yourselves personally?
2: No, I have not done it personally. Dave's been to a few crybaby bridges.
1: Oh yeah, but, yeah. We got a we got one here too, Britt, What about you? Uh, do you have a crybaby bridge anywhere near you?
0: Not that I know of. I'm sure there is one, but uh, not that I am aware of, or that interests me enough. <laughs>
1: Fair enough. Uh, we, uh, we have We don't have a what, No, actually, we do have a crybaby bridge uh, There's this whole stretcher road here in North Carolina uh, called Edwards Road which is oftenly, uh, often mistaken for the Payne Road because Edwards turns into Payne with a Y, not an I But it, um, it has its own crybaby bridge But more important than that it also has a satanic burning of a Methodist church
4: Oh, uh, <laughs> mm.
1: yeah a whole lot of grave robbing and um, this site of uh, a man named uh, Myrus Edwards I believe his name was but that was the site of my first paranormal investigation uh, this, this guy decided to commit suicide after an argument with his wife by laying down in his truck and um, making a pillow out of a stick of dynamite mm. wow Dramatic way to go, but that's not my hometown, so I won't go into details on that. We'll have to save that for another one because North Carolina is just chock full of weird, and I'll come back to that in another. part. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Britt, what about you? What are what is one of the uh, the ghost stories or uh, great folklore legends that you have around your area?
0: So uh, we do have we do have a hitchhiker ghost, not uh, not far from where I grew up in Live Oak off of uh, County Road 136. And this hitchhiker ghost is uh, described as like a little girl with long, dark hair, but with like a pit for a face which scares the shit out of a lot of people because initially they see a girl, a young girl on the side of the road and it's usually at night. So people stop and, you know, it's the South. So especially if, you know, if it's not a, a human sex trafficker picking you up at night in the South here, it's um, somebody actually may be concerned about your well-being. <laughs> but you know, people stop. And then um, by the time I guess she turns around to face them or they can see her face, it's just a pit. There are no facial features or anything there. Um so yeah, that is the hitchhiker girl of County Road 136.
1: Is there a uh, is there a name for this ghost or is that just what it's known the hitchhiker ghost of 136?
0: That is what she is known as. I have tried to find like any corroborating stories of maybe girls that have passed away or young children that have passed away in that area. I could not find anything. Um, when I was doing my research for that, though, that was years ago. So maybe there's some new information out there. But um, yeah, I couldn't find anything concrete about her. So she could just very well be a local little urban legend.
1: Do you have a, 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 any other road-based ghost where you're from?
0: Ooh. Um, not that I can think of off the top of my head. We have a lot of really creepy windy like old dirt roads that have like the tree tunnels um, so like with very little light coming through it's nice and eerie you know back in the day I used to get stoned and drive at night <laughs> on these roads but there are a lot of crossroad type areas down where I grew up that just had a very like high energy, feel toward them, but, um, no, no known creeping entities around those.
1: Well, uh, and as for me, um, I grew up in this town called Natchez, Mississippi. And I mean, it's, you want to talk about deep South, like no jokes needed. We're really talking about deep South. Uh, it was un, unpleasant place to, to grow up in. Um, however, the first few paranormal experiences that I ever had happened in that town. And one of the most significant ones was at this place called King's Tavern. Now King's Tavern, uh, was originally built in late 1700s. I I might be wrong about that. And it originally served as kind of like a, a hub for all of the, um, river travelers, whether it's for business or pirates and, and whatnot. Um, People would use Nash's as a hub. It was a, a great trading spot and a, a good hiding spot for river pirates. Uh, but King's Tavern was known for being a warm and welcoming place. And most often than not, a whole bunch of random people would just pop in, have a few drinks, grab a cot, get up in the morning, gone. You'll never, ever see him again. Now, before I go further into this, have any of y'all ever heard of uh, the Hart Brothers?
0: The Harp brothers,
1: the Harp brothers. Harp. No. Uh. Okay, they were uh, they were known for essentially being like ruthless pair of criminals that constantly ran up and down the uh, the Mississippi River. The elder Harp, and I can't remember his name. It was something ridiculous like Happy Harp or, or something like that. There's or it might have been Big Harp, Little Harp. Big Harp walks into King's Tavern which at this point is, on one side of it during the daytime, it's a marketplace, and on the inside it is a local taproom and watering hole. So this guy comes in and uh, grabs a drink and asks for a room. And during the time, the waitress is trying to coddle her baby newborn, who is just constantly crying, and tries to soothe the child, and walks up to meet Big Harp and says, Can I help you? He's like, I, I want a room child is constantly crying during this whole exchange, but eventually he pays a woman and says, if you don't shut that child up, I will. And then he heads on upstairs to his room. So about 20, 30 minutes pass. And at this point, uh, Big Harp is tossing and turning in his bed and the child is still screaming downstairs. He proceeds to get out of bed, slowly walk downstairs, walks up to the woman and says, give me the child. And the woman thinking you know, maybe this guy is just gonna try to show a trick on how to calm the child. says, "I swear i'll I'll get him to be quiet. I'm really sorry for the disturbance. When she reaches the child out, he proceeds to trigger warning, just in case this is going to get violent. Proceeds to grab the young child by its ankles and flings it across the room until its head smashes one of the posts holding up the ceiling. And then essentially knocked the head clean off and proceeds to place the headless body back into the arms of the shocked woman and then heads straight back upstairs to go to bed. Holy shit. (laughs) Now the the tale here is that you can still hear the child cry uh, sometime in the wee hours of the morning. And I can tell you that that is 100 percent true. I knew a bartender when I lived in Natchez, Mississippi, and genuinely, you know, generally closed up the shop pretty much every night. I was a night owl, so I'd also hang out with her while she's shutting the place down. And on more than one occasion, when that last light goes off, you will hear a whimper of a, a child, and the kind of like the cracking of someone beginning to cry, and then you will hear it. Completely cut out. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And that's not the only one. We'll come back to King's Tavern, but I'm gonna toss the ball back over to uh Dave and Amy. What else you got for us?
2: Well, we've got a hitchhiker as well. We had a couple hitchhikers. Um we're a college town. So there's a lot of people coming and going through here. Uh there's this place on the west side of town that is called the Ten Mile Flat. Um, basically it's floodplain for the South Canadian River that runs just through our town. Uh, Now this area, there was a woman who, her name was Laura Kelly. Who took her baby for a drive with her mother, Sally Austin. Um, One of those things, you know, when your kids are young, we've done this with our kids. You pop them in the car, drive around for a little bit just to make them fall asleep. Right. Um, Sally noticed a young woman not more than 20 walking down the side of West Robinson Street between 36th and 48th. This happened at twilight and the sun setting into the Canadian River. Laura pulled the car over and asked the lady if she needed help or a ride. The girl climbed into the car. She had long, dark hair and had a thin, short nightgown, possibly a burial shroud. The young lady said that she had an argument with her mom. A few miles down the road, the lady was asked to be dropped off. The area is is more remote there than where she had been picked up. This was past the houses and ranches and where at the time it was just a thick cross timber woods. They stopped their car and she asked, as she asked, the girl got out and then just disappeared. There's another one up there that Dave and I have actually gone looking for, have not found him, but there is a farmer who happens to walk kind of that same stretch of road. It's a little further up, but it's there off of 36 Northwest and Indian Hills. And there's just a farmer that's seen walking out there along the road. And that used to be fields. It's built up quite a bit now. Um, Now I think there's, there's a cemetery at that corner. Then there's also a, a water park and some like housing additions over in that area now, but it did used to all be farmland. Um, But people will drive by, see him, and then when they drive past, he's
3: just gone. Now, I'm surprised Highway 9 does not have more phantom stories. I mean, people have regularly died in accidents along it for decades. Yes. We literally call it Death Highway. Yes.
1: Ah, it's one of those. Okay. Yeah.
2: I've actually had many friends killed on Highway yeah. 9.
3: Yeah. I, I had one, one of my friends killed just uh, oh a couple years ago, Justin. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and then I've got my own hitchhiker story. It's not a hitchhiker story. He's a bike rider. <laughs> um, that same stretch of road, thirty six northwest. I don't. Were we
1: talking bicycle or motorcycle? Bicycle. Okay.
2: And uh, there, it's this really curvy part of the road. Um, it's surrounded by cross timbers on both sides, and it's not every time I drive this route, and I drive this route a lot because it's the way I go to my parents' house, but. Every once in a while, I'll drive that road and I will see somebody riding the bike. But then when I make that curve, there's nobody there anymore. And I've seen him at different times of day. But usually it's usually it's around twilight is the most often I've seen him. And I've tried to drive that road again to debunk it to see if it's like car lights flashing off the fence or something like that. But one day, Dave was with me and Dave actually saw it, too. So then I didn't feel really as crazy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you just, you catch this glimpse of somebody riding the bike and then they're just gone and there's no road or track, any kind of, it's it's fenced off. So there's no trail (laughs) or anything for them to go off on. So yeah, they just disappear.
3: Yeah. It's just a quick glimpse. I mean, it could even be like the phantom of like somebody riding horseback even. It could be. Yeah. But you just notice somebody at about that height and then you're like, oh, I need to be careful how I'm driving because there's. Well, they're not there anymore. Yeah. What the hell was that? <laughs> Interesting.
1: I've got a thing with the road ghosts, like whether it's uh, whether it's hitchhikers or bystanders or things like that. Um, you know how there's a lot of commentary regarding the idea that um, theaters in general, even if nobody died there, are often haunted, and it's because wandering spirits tend to go to a place that they felt comfortable or could congregate and that's why places like that pick up so much energy it's it's almost like a snowball effect of, of lost souls basically but um the roads like our our highway system has thousands thousands of stories to tell that i don't think anybody's really tapped into um and i think part of that is because it's not as contained as like a house or a building or something like that yeah estes road trip Fuck yeah! That's gonna happen. Absolutely right. Well, Britt, what else you got from your state, from from your home? You got any other uh, oddities you want to share?
0: Sure, I have a um, an alien related thing. So, and I again, I don't know if this is like just a me thing. If this was tied to the land, maybe if anybody else that was in the area experienced any of this, I don't know. But when I was a kid. In the house that we grew up in, um, which was part of what's known as the historic Forestville community, which used to be occupied by, forgive me, I forgot what groups of Indigenous people, but there was a time where I had this nightmare as a kid to where I would wake up in bed at night, unable to move, you know, classic close encounters of the third kind or whatever type um, in bed, unable to move, but I can look around and I'm surrounded by all of these little things with big beady black fucking eyes. And then there's another dream that I remember particularly because this one I always, I never understood why, but I remember waking up in bed and turning over something told me that there was like a presence or something to the right of me. And I turned to my right and next to my bed was the same like grayish skinned little thin sickly looking thing with big beady black eyes with its head turned in my direction. It was levitating above the ground, but like in a supine position. And so if if you're unfamiliar with what supine means, it means lying on your back. So it was, it was almost, and as an adult, it kind of was almost like it was mimicking what I was doing. Um, and it has always made me really uncomfortable, but as an adult, I heard about the aerial school incident. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. But I've got a brief description for our listeners.
0: Yeah. So, um, in the, I believe it was the nineties in Africa in a little school called the aerial school yeah yeah and uh it was like an elementary school i believe um so young young kids there and all of a sudden they just come running inside screaming i guess the adults were having like a staff meeting or something at the time um but the kids came inside screaming saying that they heard these popping sounds all of a sudden there were crafts visible And things coming out of the crafts. And two girls specifically described that they, at the time that this happened, were hopping. They were like hopping next to boundary locks that lined the property. And all of a sudden, when they heard the popping noise, there was this being next to them that was hopping just like they were, but looking at them. And so, I don't know. Maybe it was just my mind connecting that, but I immediately brought me back to that moment as a kid where this thing was just like hovering above the ground, but like it was lying down in a bed looking at me.
1: (laughs) Essentially doing like like making a mirror image of you.
0: Yeah. Kind of.
1: So, um, uh, a, a few things there because you actually just tapped into one of my personal favorite uh, UFO stories of all time that that incident is one of the most well documented and what what was it something like uh, 24 25 kids and yes. um, and one adult staff member that mm-hmm. was out there with them witnessed mm-hmm. all of this and not too long ago they had a reunion interview where they interviewed those same kids and the vast majority of them are, were like I still stand by what I saw and what I experienced, and um, yes. doing this interview is probably going to ruin my life. So thanks. <laughs> but regarding your own personal experience, what you saw, do you think that lines up with the like the the cookie cutter version of what we refer to as the Grays?
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. very much like Whitley Strieber's communion face.
1: Oh, Interesting. Are we? Do you? <laughs> Did you have any other experiences like that or is that just the one that shines out the most?
0: Those are the ones that shine out the most. Now, I, so I don't know where these behaviors came from, but, and I still have some of them. Some of them are just like so ingrained, they're hard to break. But ever since I can remember, I have to like, especially on that property, I had to check my bedroom, like look out the bedroom window and inspect every part of outside that i could see before i felt comfortable enough to go to bed and then once i was in bed i had to like be up against the wall so that i if i opened my eyes everything in the room was visible my back wasn't to a door or anything and i particularly remember one this is one that sticks to me is still to this day i cover my ears because i feel like somebody's going to stick something in them. And th- th- I don't mean that in a sexual way. I just really, that has been so deep seated in me since I was a young kid that I'm going to get probed in the years, I guess. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> uh.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I think you're triggering some stuff for me over here, to be honest.
2: <laughs> Let me tell you, I can do ghosts all day long. Ghosts don't really scare me too much. I mean, the turning the corner and then being there frightens me, but it's more of that shock factor. But alien stuff, I will tell you, that is like my favorite thing to cover on our podcast and my least favorite thing to cover on the podcast because (laughs) they terrify me because you start going down those wormholes and you get lost in all these rabbit holes (laughs) here. And then all of a sudden you're like, I don't know what's happening (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: I don't know what's real <laughs> that being the worst part of it. And, and so like I've had plenty of UFO experiences, none actually involving beings. I, I haven't seen a being I've felt the presence of things, but for me, like the vast majority of the experiences, or at least the ones I can remember all anomalous things in the sky. And it's, it's one of those things and you hear a lot of people talk about this. You'll that people describe this light that is moving across the sky that as they look at it it's like that is not a plane that can't be a plane it's just it's the way that it illuminates the way that it is gliding so perfectly um but as it approaches you will hear these witnesses often talk about this like overwhelming sense of dread mm-hmm. like drenching them and you <laughs> hear that a lot with the whole black triangle thing especially that there's this premonition of dread before the visual contact is made. Um, That's what I've experienced out here in North Carolina for the most part, with the exception of Brown Mountain. uh, That was delightful. And I think those are elementals, not UFOs. Hmm. That's a whole other rabbit hole, though. We'll we'll save that for...
3: (laughs) (laughs) Now, there's certain sound frequencies that can fill somebody with dread. They use them in (laughs) horror movies and stuff underneath the... 20 I think 20 megahertz or something and it's also kind of the same vibrations the earth lets out before earthquakes or volcanoes and things so it's somewhat hardwired into our brain where when we sense that subsonic frequency bad shit's about to happen and I've often wondered if uh, if those UFOs put out a frequency like that with their with their travel
4: Mm
1: -hmm. well it's a the The frequency of of whatever gravity drive engine that they're using, which obviously would resonate in, let's say, unnatural wavelengths. <laughs> I mean at best, but it's certainly things that we're not familiar with. So that could easily elicit that trigger response of um, dread. And if it's powerful enough, it could explain away the concept of premonition by the fact that you're just your body is picking up on frequencies that is pumping out way further than the object that's emitting them. Mm-hmm. So you're feeling that before it arrives. That's interesting. Hmm. Dave, Amy, you guys got any, uh, UFO alien stories on, on, in your neck of the woods?
2: Um, I mean, I have a personal UFO story that happened to me when I was, I was probably nine or 10. I was with my dad and we have Lake Thunderbird, which is Lake dirty bird around here. Gross, disgusting Lake that we have, <laughs> But um, we used to live the that, that haunted house that I lived in was about a mile from the lake. So we were driving home and my dad goes, hey, what's that? And we look and just hovering over the lake was this round light that was just kind of hovering there. And we also live in a college town. So we have the University of Oklahoma, which has the. Uh, National Weather Center here and all the meteorologists train here, all that type of stuff. So there's weather balloons that are released all the time. So we were kind of watching it, kind of trying to see if it was a, you know, a weather balloon that it was reflecting the light just right. And we're sitting there watching it. And then all of a sudden it just shoots off and just disappears. Uh, But that's the only UFO story that I actually have ever experienced. And I've never heard of anything. A lot happens in Texas, South of us. Yeah. Uh, Strange lights in the sky. That tends to be.
1: Oh, the Marfa lights are on my list for hopefully for next year.
2: But that's about it for UFOs here. Even the aliens don't want to come to Oklahoma. no
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, no, no that is that is wholeheartedly untrue. You just need to go to more uh, mountainous and sparse areas. I promise you, um, they're at they are there.
2: Say so that's where Bigfoot hangs out around here. Is in the mountains.
1: Who's to say they're not related?
2: I, I think they might be.
1: Just Man, saying.
0: That's why I miss Colorado so much. I always felt like I was in fucking Bigfoot territory. Now I'm just in skunk ape territory, so.
3: Stinkiest, stinkiest skunk ape. Yep. Oh,
1: so stinky. It's one of the spots we're thinking about moving to, though. Uh, we're going to be getting out of North Carolina here before too long, so. Um, who knows where the weird winds will take us next? <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> Well, uh I want to swing it back to uh to my ne- neck of the woods just for a minute. And, you know, before I talked about uh King's Tavern and the whole thing with the Hart brothers and the infant being uh, brutally killed. Ugh, uh I wish I could say that the death stopped there, but it did not. <laughs> so I'm gonna take this moment to uh to read it. And actually this is this is coming from a book called Haunted Natchez by Alan Brown. And while I know the story very well, he actually summed it up pretty good here. Uh, So I just want to condense it with that, right? So this guy, uh, Richard King, owned King's Tavern. He's the one who um, bought the land, built the building, turned it into an inn, turned it into a tavern. Well, some of the ghosts that haunt King's Tavern are restless spirits who met a violent end, of course, as we already know. But there is another one uh, referring to a very young girl, 16 years old, named Madeline. Madeline was hired there as a server, and eventually Richard became enamored of the girl and eventually seduced her. Mm. Richard's wife found out about Madeline and disposed of her very quickly. Some people believe that the wife stabbed Madeline and concealed her corpse behind the bricks in the chimney, while others... Have heard tales of her hiring two thugs to do the deed and get rid of her. So eventually, after her disappearance, Madeline became a fading memory. But then in the 1930s, workers who were uh, enlarging the fireplace and doing renovations tore down the original chimney wall. And behind it, they found three skeletons two men, one female, and the female had a jeweled dagger sitting in her rib cage right about where her heart was
2: whoa wow
1: yeah people say that madeline haunts the grounds uh, if you talk to former bartenders there there is this constant joke going on that doors in king's tavern will open on their own and um when the staff gets fed up with it they will actually stamp their foot down and say okay madeline and then all the doors will shut on their own that's cool Yeah, I I never witnessed that myself, though I did witness some of the staff try it during the time that I was living in Natchez. And it it just it never rung into fruition. But what does stand out for me is originally there was a portrait of Madeline that was hanging over the chimney in the, the main room in the tavern. Now eventually after renovations the chimney was kind of taken out of that main tavern hall and it was expanded. They threw a pool table in there and crap like that. So the chimney was completely taken down. Everything was restructured in the main hall. But that portrait ended up going to this bedroom that was right above the bar. When you walk into King's Tavern, long type of pool hall type of place, you you can go a little bit further and then you have bathrooms and then there's a staircase that's always roped off. If you go up those stairs, there's two rooms, and both of them were rented out at the inn. Um, If you go up to the top of the stairs, the room on the left is where um, the big harp stayed before he slaughtered the child. But over to the right, the portrait of Madeline that once hung over the fireplace downstairs now hangs in there. And what I experienced when I was brought up there after hours one night is we walked into the room... And when I looked at the bed, there was a perfect imprint like somebody was sitting on the bed right then and there. And I went over there and I put my hand on it and it was warm. Now from there, I turned my attention to the portrait of Madeline, which was on the wall just opposite the bed. And here's what gets really weird. No matter where I stood in that room and I walked all around it, no matter where I stood if I was not two feet away from this, then the street light somehow managed to always obscure the face no matter where I stood, unless I was right up on it. And even then the shine always came through. Now, knowing the way that light works and, and the dynamics of everything, we sat there for like half an hour trying to figure out how this is happening because it wasn't just me who witnessed it. It was like seven people, but there was no way that that light could have bent the way that it did to constantly obscure the face from all those different angles in the room. It's just wild. That place is thick. Like you cut it with a butter knife at (laughs) at the very least cut through the ectoplasm, you know,
0: (laughs) (laughs) and this is in North Carolina.
1: No, this is in Natchez, Mississippi.
0: Oh, and that's right. Natchez, Mississippi. Okay. Mississippi.
1: Yeah, all the whoppers that I'm bringing tonight actually do come from my hometown. That place is thick, and and I never really noticed it up until a couple of years ago when I went back and um, revisited the place after I had kind of opened my mind to this line of research and had a few experiences uh, as an adult. And then all of these memories of what I experienced growing up there just came flooding back, like the weird stuff with the hat man When i lived in my parents house uh the stuff at king's tavern my first girlfriend ever lived in this place called the keyhole house and um rumor has it is when they bought the place and i can never get her parents to talk to me about it but apparently when they bought the place there was one room on the second floor that was nailed shut from the inside and when they plowed through it the whole room was painted black Candle wax everywhere, including the ceiling, and more than a handful of archaic symbols. Like nothing as cheesy as a pentagram, but we're talking like real serious sigil work here. So, oh shit.
4: Um,
1: and I had a couple of really frightening experiences in that house.
4: Hmm.
1: Yeah my my hometown. Pretty freaking crazy. It's a great place to visit for a haunt. Don't ever move there. It's just <laughs> awful. It is awful. It is terrible. It is the worst of the worst of of the South. Sorry, my Natchez friends. I know you're listening to at least some of this. Uh, I love you. <laughs> but the town sucks. <laughs> it just does. It does. Mm-hmm. And they know it. Anyway, uh, so that's my uh that's my next fodder to the freaky fire for the evening. Um Who else has one?
2: We got some crime brothers here.
1: All right,
3: bring it on. I'm going to tell you about the Blue Brothers, as it was told to me by Jeff Provine. Jeff Provine is a local author, uh, mostly of paranormal books uh, in our home state. He's also written Celestial Voyages, which is a series of historical steampunk novels. Uh, he draws the Academy webcomic, and he also teaches courses on composition, mythology, and the history of comic books. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'd take that course.
4: <laughs>
2: He's a really cool guy. We got to meet him; it was it was really fun. Yeah,
3: awesome. he also hosts like paranormal tours at the at our own home cities downtown and the. Um, campus we have nearby
2: and, and also in Oklahoma City does a, downtown, yeah. a haunted downtown tour of Oklahoma City
1: oh hell man you guys gotta send them to me I'll, I'll add it to the list we're gonna be traveling a lot next year so <laughs> we may end up in your city next
3: <laughs> so today Cedar Lane runs haphazardly over isolated hills and down valleys thick with trees about 140 years ago however it was prairie land and one could see for 20 miles in all directions from the top of the tallest hill. And it was there the Cherokee brothers Dave and Jim Blue set up their trading post after the Civil War. By 1873, when Abner Norman and his surveying crew arrived, the Oklahoma cattle drives were declining as railroads were expanding west. That's when the brothers got into the buffalo hunting trade. Many people will say it was one particular group that slaughtered buffalo mercilessly, but history is often complex, and many were interested in the business of buffalo. Commercial hunting slaughtered millions for their hides and bones, which were ground into bone mill for fertilizer. Buffalo were considered hazardous to the railroads. They are mile-long herds halting locomotives and travel causing tracks to deteriorate faster. Bounties were actually rewarded to anyone that had proof of a dead bison. Other plots were politically motivated, in an effort to eliminate the Native American food and goods supply to encourage their dependence on the federal government and manufacturers. It is estimated that out of the 60 million head of buffalo, fewer than 800 remained by 1890. Dave Blue, who would lead whole teams populated by Cherokee and Creek on hunts through the region, In just 1873 alone, they packed two wagons full of buffalo hides and hauled them to Atoka, which was the nearest train depot at the time. And this is about 90 miles from Norman. The last wild buffalo in Pottawatomie County was shot by the trader and founder of the Chisholm Trail, Jesse Chisholm's son, William, in 1876. After helping to exhaust the buffalo herds for profit, the Blue Brothers turned to different sources of income. Most of this becomes non-confirmable from here. But there are hints and rumors they became cattle rustlers. Many ranchers out of Texas disliked Chisholm's Trail because it came too close to the fringes of civilization and chose the Blue Brothers Trail instead. Over time, these Cherokee brothers were thought of as pioneers in an unsettled land. Their trading posts bought a point of civilization to a rough land. There are markers all around our town about them to this day. Two creeks leading to the Little River are named after them. When the river was dammed to become Lake Thunderbird in the 20th century, two coves were named after them. Many opinions about the Blue Brothers exist. Many local ranchers didn't trust them. There were very dark concerns about their isolated operation on the top of the hill in the prairie, far from the water source of the Little River. Sometimes small groups of travelers would see their outpost, ask for lodging, and trade some goods. If these travelers went missing, it was easy enough to believe they were victims of the wild prairies, which created a perfect cover to kill and loot those traveling in small groups. Over the years, up until the present day, shallow graves are still found all around this area. There is differing reports on what exactly happened to the Blue Brothers. Some say they traveled up to Cherokee Territory, where they got into a violent altercation and were killed. Other reports say marshals raided the training post led by either the federal government or the United States Cavalry. The story goes as follows. The posse was moving through what was then Indian Territory, cleaning out outlaws from their hideouts. The Blue Brothers would have been able to see them coming from miles away. However, when the horsemen arrived, the Blue Brothers were just getting back to the trading post. An argument broke out, and the brothers fled. The posse took chase, and according to legend, Dave Blue was shot at the Eastern Creek now named after him, and Jim Blue was shot at the Western Creek now named after him. What this was all about depends on who you ask or what articles you read. Some believe it was the discovery of the Blues victims that prompted this. Others say it was a corrupt posse performing a shakedown. Folklore says the brothers kept a fortune of gold and silver tucked into saddlebags, ready to be moved in a moment's notice. This was hoarded over decades, either from serial killing, cattle rustling, trading, or buffalo slaughtering. When they saw the posse coming they would have hurried their treasure to Little River and hid it among the rock outcroppings. Then after they returned and had no money, an argument arose, and being outnumbered, they fled, chased to the Little River, where Dave Blue was killed. Jim captured, maybe to lead them to the treasure. He might have given up the hiding place and was then killed, or killed because he never released it. In the middle of the 1900s, the Oliphant family found a Colt percussion revolver in the field where East 120th Street runs today. Historians dated it to be a proper age and popular type for the frontier of the 1870s. It was half-cocked with three empty chambers. This discovery was made close to the creek that bears the name of one of the brothers. Fast forward 60 years. A vacationing family son at Lake Thunderbird Seven-year-old Jared Melton was swimming near Clear Bay in July of 2006. He stepped on something hard in the shallow water. The family started digging it up with a sense of adventure. It turned out to be a human skull. They called the police, who were very concerned, because back in May of 2006, a couple of months prior, a pair of disembodied feet had washed up. The skull had cracks in it, which were determined to be wounds from a heavy-caliber gunshot, and it turned out to be over a hundred years old. Across from Clear Bay, known for its trails, campsites, and red murky water, is a rock outcropping now sunk under the dirty brown water. A rash of drownings in the previous years have led, much to, have led to much speculation. Some blame it on the lake being made by flooding over Native American burial grounds, an octopus, or the spectral hands of Jim or Dave Blue dragging those that get too close to their treasure to a watery grave. In the 1870s, it would have overlooked the Little River, a recognizable landmark with plenty of crags for hiding such treasure. At this time, the river would have been almost 15 feet deep and 20 feet wide, having steep banks on either side. The area where the Blue Brothers Trading Post is was staked by U.N. Shelton in the 1889 land run, who turned the area into the first cotton farm in town. Later, it became stables for private riding lessons. Nowadays, it's covered in trees and has a cell phone tower sticking out of it. But to this day, No one has unearthed any of the Blue Brothers' treasure.
0: That's pretty cool.
1: How come I'm never lucky enough to find a fucking human skull? (laughs) You know what? If
2: you come to Thunderbird, you'll find one because I'm sure that there's millions of dead bodies in that lake, and you would never see them.
1: I'm <laughs> coming to visit them, because <laughs> no, this this guy wants his own human skull to carve out his own magic square on. <laughs> Don't you judge me.
2: <laughs> I'm going to tag on to that a little bit, too, because he mentioned the octopus, and we have our very own cryptid here in Norman, Oklahoma. Um, our podcast, we refer to it as Thunderpuss, <laughs> um,
1: it's a land octopus. No,
2: he lives in the lake.
1: Oh, okay. Yes,
2: right. he's a freshwater octopus. <laughs> um, interesting enough, I've lived here for almost forty years now, and it wasn't until maybe ten years ago I heard of this. Uh, there was a release on on uh, oh, what was the
3: show? Lost tapes. Lost I tapes.
2: Yes, Lost Tapes did a whole story on the Oklahoma octopus, and. So this became our legend around here is the Oklahoma octopus. Um, Now, he is said to pull people down underwater. He's supposed to be giant. Um, What's
1: that? I'm looking it up right now. This is not great. Um, We often joke about
2: it because... Yeah, never heard of it. Now I would there's all kinds of things that live in Thunderbird, and you can't see more than maybe six inches under the water, right? Um, so there could be something living in there. We found alligators in there. We've you know all kinds of things oh, in yeah. it, but uh, yeah, uh, we just refer to it as Thunderpuss and like <laughs> to make jokes about it. So, but yes, there is our own cryptid here in town, and it's about three miles from us.
3: A lot of that came to be when there was a rash of. Like hundreds of drowning deaths in the early 2000s.
2: Yes, there were. There's lots of drownings out at Thunderbird, and it's a lot of it has to do with alcohol.
3: Now, sure. Yeah, (laughs) I will say that there are catfish in it that are as big as a
1: Volkswagen.
2: Oh yeah, there are huge catfish in it. But I grew up
1: on the Mississippi. They get even bigger than that. It's Mm -hmm. it's it's crazy. Like I used to go noodling. I have been pulled down into the water by a catfish. More than once.
2: Oh, yeah. And noodling's oh, yeah. huge here. So, yeah, that's what a lot of it is, <laughs> is, people noodling for these giant catfish.
1: That's right. There's a little bit of a country boy in me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I have personally never been noodling and never desired to go noodling. Um,
1: you should do it once. its It actually is. It's an interesting experience just to understand how they do it and um, how a less painful way to catch catfish, I guess. I don't know. My I got luck, mixed I'd feelings find- about all of it.
2: The giant alligator snapping turtle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> or maybe you'll find Thunderpuss. Which, I could by find the way,
2: Thunderpuss. Yes.
1: You guys need to do a limited run of Unearthing Paranormal Thunder uh, Thunderpuss T-shirts, and I am going to be your first. Oh,
2: we have them. Customer. They're on our uh, Redbubble site. <laughs>
1: yeah. Cool. All right, everybody, send, send me the links to all of their shit, and especially specific links to anything that we're talking about tonight. Yeah. And yeah, I will blow this shit. We've got Thunderpuss,
2: and we've got our werecow. Cow.
1: Okay. <laughs> so now you you can't drop a line like that and, and not explain. Go on.
2: Well, we did an episode on cattle mutilation. Mm-hmm. And we were coming up with our th- alternative theories on what could be causing all these cattle mutilations. And one of the alternate theories was that they were just ware cows. And when they shift, they shed their skins. Oh. So that's why everything was missing. And so we built this whole big giant ware cow.
1: Like, mythos. Mythos. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that leads me to all sorts of questions, because if you look at the vast majority of cattle mutilations, and especially if you start looking into, like, the boring out from the anus and the guts so perfectly without blood, does that mean they shoot out of the ass like a (laughs) cylinder and then burst into the were-cow? Like, how does this work?
2: (laughs) Sure. Does it come (laughs) catapulting out like... Chad is our leading expert on the Werecow, but unfortunately ah, he's, he's not, not here. here
3: tonight. Okay. All right. But uh we could also ask Chase.
2: Yeah, we have a uh, we have our resident Werecow listener who likes to send us awesome Werecow stories that he writes up and yes.
3: He joined us on the Bosack humanoid case, which is a a cryptid humanoid sighting of a half
1: so There's I think no, we should no. close this whole conversation out with a were cow reading, and, and end on something completely fictional. That's that's <laughs> a total freaking larf. Absolutely,
2: I say. <laughs> I know our other 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 theories were that they were uh, reptilian incubators, and uh, that the aliens would shoot their their eggs into the uh, cows, and then when they hatch. They burst out of the cows. <laughs>
1: I don't know, man. You start looking into uh, like Dolce base and and all that stuff. And, um, you know, maybe it's it's all about the grime and the food and the greys are just eating everything.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And maybe the reptilians might be our hidden allies. Or maybe it's all bullshit and David Icke really needs to take a break.
2: Yeah, but you listen to him and it's just so enthusiastic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. No, look, see, see alright. So I'm gonna go off on a tangent here really quick if y'all don't mind. But I, I I do my UFO research. I am all about this stuff. I've had enough experiences to not doubt anymore. But you immediately lose me at the reptilians and um the tall whites and the Pleiadians. You completely lose me. It just no, absolutely not. The Grace, Pleiadians that are my shit's people. probably real.
4: Uh, <laughs>
1: oh god alright I'm done this This conversation is over I swear to god if you go indigo child on me right now I'm out oh
2: <laughs> No, hey, uh, I, we, we created a rela- religion we are the Pleiadiacs and our whole goal uh, is for the Pleiadians to come down and save us and I want to uh, I want to date a Pleiadian <laughs> <laughs> prove that I can <laughs>
1: I think I'm gonna stick with Discordianism myself. Because, <laughs> yeah. It's like the Hitchhiker's Guide to Occultism, which is just brilliant.
0: <laughs> hey, uh, Flood, if you're into like um like channeling material, um, you should I read. I got a book rec for you. So it's called The Law of One. Definitely I've check. Heard that out. of this? Who wrote it? Um. Well, it's channeled material, so. The humble messenger is raw, the entity.
1: Okay. Or it's actually... All right. no, I've... So, all right, I'll, I'll give it a shot, but, okay, I got to admit, the <laughs> whole concept of channeling, I'm, I'm not opposed to, and I, I don't doubt it for some of the people who really tap into some really interesting stuff, but I have started to experience it. On paranormal investigations and it's like the whole concept of channeling is now getting a little weird for me because anytime that we do an Estes session at any one of the locations that we go to it takes me about like five minutes or so and I'm out like I don't remember what happens and going back and listening to the stuff gets really trippy and disorienting to me it's it's pretty wild so I, I do believe that there is something to channeling, but I don't think I'm experiencing it the way that uh, most of these people do. And the vast majority of people who call themselves channelers, no, I <laughs> just, just no. But always open to learn, read, and listen. So, so yeah, send it to me. I'll, I'll check it out.
0: All right. Yeah, definitely. Um, I have a totally unrelated story if we have time to share uh, with you guys. So um, can I tell you guys about an exploding bishop?
1: Yes. yes. Oh, please do.
0: <laughs> I am intrigued. Okay, okay. So okay, so I already mentioned that uh my college town was St. Augustine here in Florida. Um which uh which um uh, is technically technically it's older than uh, Roanoke, Plymouth, Jamestown, all that shit. Um if it wasn't an English settlement, it was a European settlement, but whatever. Was still uh the first Non-indigenous community, I guess, established here as far as we know. So, in 1565, Saint Augustine was founded. <clears throat> and uh, fast forward a little bit. I won't go too much into the history of Saint Augustine because that's not the interesting part. We're talking about an exploding bishop. So, in eighteen seventy six, a bishop Augustine Vero served. He served as Florida or not Florida's, but Saint Augustine. His uh, he was the first Catholic bishop of the diocese in St. Augustine. So he died in 1876, and because people had to travel from great distances across Europe over to Florida for the funeral procession, there was a period of like 10 to 14 days between the time that he died to when the funeral actually took place. So if you know anything about the Florida heat. it's very muggy. It's very humid. It's very fucking hot here. Um, And it doesn't matter what time of year it is. It's just always Satan's ball sack here.
1: It's very much like New Orleans, but you do actually have the added bonus of when that sun goes down and the, the wind starts coming in off of the coast. That don't happen in New Orleans.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I wish I felt that here at night that would be (laughs) that would be nice are
1: you too landlocked for it huh
0: i think i think i am um uh, but yeah so uh, definitely saint augustine though that breeze that breeze is nice right there on the 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 coast but um so anyways uh bishop varro he died in 1876 and they the coffin that they chose to put his body in for the funeral procession and prior to that, right after he died, up until that point, was a metal coffin with a glass viewing window. So over that period of roughly two weeks, um, his body was cooking inside of the metal coffin. So during the funeral procession itself... It actually, the glass window exploded from the pressure inside and the heat, and his body parts spewed out of it, and people were covered in oh, bishop remains.
3: It sounds like everybody diagonally to him was fucked.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> this is this really happened. So then they they gathered up his this remains. Is what after. I want my
1: funeral to be like, <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> really, really epic. Um, So they took his remains, or what was left of him, basically, and um, all nice and cooked up at that point, and they threw it in a sack, and they actually put him inside of a tomb in the Talamato Cemetery that already was occupied (laughs) with another religious person's remains. And they stayed there for years and years and years until the original occupier of the tomb that he was put in was moved back to Cuba. But yes, that is the story of the exploding bishop of St. Augustine.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, that wins. That's the best That's the best fucking story of the night.
2: Can you imagine being the oh poor guy who had to walk around to everybody? Oh, I need to have this back. This is the bishop's, uh, this is mine. Excuse
1: me, it would appear there's an ear in your hair. May I, please? That is, wow, Britt. that is, wow, that, that, actually, you know what, that's good old-fashioned Halloween fun right there. You know what, I can't think of any better story to cap off the, the kickoff to spooky season than something that is just so disgustingly fucking hilarious.
2: Goddamn.
1: That's great. No, that really is. That's, that's.
2: And you, that's, that's one of those stories you can smell. You know, whoever. Like, oh yeah,
1: <laughs> I feel like whoever made the movie of Swiss Army Man needs to make a uh, a, a pick about this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so if you guys are ever in St Augustine and you're right on the edge of where where St George Street starts, where across the street you can see like the central plaza, right? So if you're ever at that start of St. George Street and St. Augustine, that big Catholic cathedral looking church that's right there is actually the church where the funeral procession was held and he exploded. So yeah.
1: So you're gonna you're gonna come down and uh meet us in January if I make my way over there then?
0: Hell yes. January is my awesome. birth month. So I'm fucking definitely down All for right a birthday on. adventure.
1: Well, I'm gonna be there uh late December, early January, uh So far, the goal is St. Augustine, uh, Casadaga, and uh, Coral Castle, and a a couple of other places. But it's going to be like a pretty heavy four to five days of nonstop investigations, but you're welcome to join for any of them.
0: Hell yeah, that sounds awesome. I'm definitely down.
1: Right on, right on. Well, uh, does anybody have one last tale that they want to close out with?
2: We can close out with Al Capone.
1: I'm all about Capone. Bring it on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <clears throat> well, this is Capone
3: adjacent. <laughs> um, and I don't know if you've heard of this guy or not, Llewellyn Morris uh, Murray Humphreys, aka the camel, aka the. Yeah, Lump. yes. Well, he lived much of his life just a few miles east of our hometown. Yeah, I got a little little bit of a bio about him. So he was born on March 20th, 1899, in Chicago, Illinois. To Welsh immigrants that struggled with poverty and suffered the loss of five of their ten children. Loulin quit school at the age of seven to work as a newsie to help his family that rented a house in the Loop. A neighborhood packed with saloons, brothels, and gambling houses. It wasn't long before the young boy realized he could make more money with intimidation, art, and theft than he ever could peddling papers. He saw his first court date for larceny at the age of 13 before Judge Jack Murray. The judge took a shine to him and hired him as his assistant, tutoring him in law and politics, hoping to change his life around. Instead, he only learned how to play the system better. At 16, he only did two months in prison for a jewelry heist. Rumors from the time say the prosecuting attorney, who was lenient, wore a new diamond-encrusted wristwatch to the trial. Now, as he was coming up, the United States had this bright ideal of outlawing alcohol. Humphreys hijacked a truck at gunpoint. The driver recognized him and turned him into his boss, Al Capone. Capone ordered his men to deliver Humphreys to him. After a few minutes with the brash young man, Capone decided instead of teaching him a lesson, He was going to offer him a job. Humphreys climbed up the ladder of Capone's organization. Uh, He took off for a while after a job went sour to visit his brother Henry in Little Axe, Oklahoma. There he posed as Lou Harris, a door-to-door electronic salesman peddling phonographs and radios. This is how he met Mary Clementine, an Oklahoma University student. They eloped to Dallas in 1921. Clemie was well-suited to Humphrey's lifestyle in Chicago. She taught him how to blend in with the upper class. These newfound manners and air about him rose him up even higher in Capone's gang to an advisor position. Capone was famously out of town for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in 1929. This just so happened at the garage right next door to Humphrey's childhood home. Humphreys got out of the liquor business and went into an area where his classiness would truly pay off, managing labor unions. First, the laundry industry, then bartenders, delivery drivers, garbage collectors. If more than a handful of people were working a job, they were trying to make a labor union out of it. Clemmie worked as the criminal outfit's secretary. Her memory was said to be so good, she never had to write anything down which is a great trait for a company trying to avoid paper trails. Even though they were careful, Humphreys was caught for tax evasion after not listing a $50,000 reward for returning a kidnapped victim as income. What a wild time, huh? In 1934, he did 15 months. After this, he moved Clemmy and his daughter, uh, that was born right before going away, to Oklahoma. They bought seven sections in Brindle corner, a small community off highway nine in other people's names and built a charming stone house there. The home was outfitted with marble counters, fixtures, pine and oak cabinets, shelves, doors, and trim. He went by the Elias uncle Lou and hosted pool parties for neighborhood children and hired a slew of housekeepers and groundkeepers from the local town. During the holidays, he was known to buy as many turkeys as he could put in his car and deliver them around to less fortunate families. He would dress as Santa Claus and hand out presents to the poor kids. He continued purchasing land around him, establishing a compound with electronic alarms, high cyclone fences, steel gates, and guards. He put on a lookout tower. Thick rose bushes kept people from going off the paths around the gardens. Rumors started that he had a series of secret tunnels underneath the property.
2: Secret tunnels!
3: Humphreys told everyone he was in the laundry business, but he obviously maintained contact with the criminal world. As convictions of tax evasion plagued his associates, they needed places to fake income, and Humphreys offered up his laundry business as that source. It was also rumored they would visit his luxurious mansion and a limpet sized swimming pool, when they needed some time away from Chicago. Humphreys also sought out semi-legitimate business investments, making campaign contributions to pro-gambling and pro-union Nevadian politicians. Fun fact, he hired Frank Sinatra to escort his daughter Luella to her graduation dance. Some say he contributed to President Kennedy, but even I doubt that. Humphreys didn't like him and his anti-gambling and union-busting stance. In 1965, Humphreys failed to appear for a court summons to testify. FBI agents spotted him at the Santa Fe Railroad Station in Norman, asking for a train scheduled to Mexico. U.S. Marshals took him to Chicago, where he joked to a grand jury, Oh, I didn't know you were looking for me. Humphreys posted the $100,000 bail and went to his penthouse apartment in Chicago. A photo turned up later of Humphreys reading a newspaper with his own indictment on the front page. Now you can actually look this photo up. This was actually taken at our local train station. Uh, and it this was used as a key piece of evidence in a trial for lying to a grand jury. Now, agents were met at the door by Humphreys with a revolver. He refused to recognize their warrant because of his joke. Agents subdued him because, you know, this was a different time. They confiscated thousands of dollars in cash and a journal that has not been deciphered to this day. According to the agents, they left and left Humphreys unharmed in the apartment. When his brother came to visit, Humphreys was dead and the apartment was torn apart. Humphrey's ashes were taken back to Brindle Corner, and over the years, Clemmy and Luella's ashes were also placed in a blue marble crypt on the property. The land was broken up. For a while, the compound was paintball fields. I think it still is. Uh, But the ghost of Humphrey's is said to haunt the grounds, searching as if lost, wandering from tree to tree. According to local legend, Humphreys left cash, gold, and jewelry all over the land, most of it buried. This spirit may also be somebody that had to, you know, disappear. Many of Humphreys' Chicago associates came to visit him, and we also have our own organized crime gangs here. Interestingly, one of the purchasers of the property, that when the land was divided, said he r- routinely plows up old car parts as if entire vehicles were dismantled and buried there. He also has a story about a contractor that ran across the six-foot-long, two-foot-wide sinkhole while bulldozing, thought it was probably an old shallow grave and quit the job on the spot. You know, maybe this was a grave from the Chicago gang, but maybe it was a grave from the Blue Brothers gang. The property is only about ten miles from the Blue Brothers trading post. And this could also just be some of those Native American burial grounds. Yep.
1: Hey, Dave, I got some paid time off coming out and a couple of shovels. You want to get into this <laughs> <right>? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go paintballing.
4: <laughs> now,
2: the house is owned in private property. Yeah. But yeah. you can drive out past it. And, yeah, you see his vault, the, the vault where his ashes are is still Ooh. on the Interesting. property. Interesting.
1: Oh, beautiful blue marble.
2: Yeah. And
1: uh, send me a picture. That, like the next time you guys are passing through it, I would love to to, to get a glimpse of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It
2: took us a while to find it the first time we drove up and down the r- Highway 9 a couple times trying to find it. But <laughs> yeah, then we found it.
3: <laughs> that's right around 120th, isn't it? Oh, Where I was that. saying they found that revolver. Is
2: it 120th or was it 156th? I don't remember now.
3: Yeah. Might be 156. Yeah. I think it's closer to that. You know, it's
2: Death Highway. Now. So it's. <laughs> yeah. Kind of pay attention when you're driving out there, but
3: <laughs> maybe that's what causes so many accidents. Maybe phantoms are scaring people on the road and they're swerving know. off. I don't know.
2: There's a lot, of that, especially knows. around 156th and 120th and Highway 9. Those are like the two most common places for them.
3: Oh yeah, at least uh at, I'd say at least 10 a month. Yeah. Oh wow.
2: And we live we live less than a mile from Highway nine. So when there are accidents, all the ambulances and everything drive right past our house. So
1: So we live right next to the high mortality highway. We do.
2: Yes. Mm -hmm. I don't take it very often.
1: (laughs) I don't blame you with that track record. It's the only highway
3: I've ever seen that the rural parts have stoplights. Yeah. (laughs) Because they're trying to cut down on some of these accidents. So they'll put stoplights every few miles.
1: I've seen them pop in in uh, places in Mississippi and Louisiana uh, since I've started going back after I left the South. So, I've, some some roads are built for death, and I, I think it takes a good solid forty fifty years for the uh, the people in charge of the infrastructure to really understand why they are causes of death.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Everybody's got a dead man curve at least somewhere in their town, right?
2: Exactly. Yeah, sure.
1: Well, that being said, guys, does anybody uh, have any final tales that they want to uh, do to wrap up this uh, this crossover?
0: Yeah, I mean, um, I could always tell you guys about Wheelchair Man, but I really feel like that's that's a whole uh, a whole separate entity in itself.
1: So, does this mean this now needs to start becoming a thing where every couple of months we get together and share some of these stories? Because I still got a whole book full of stuff to talk about but we'll be here until five in the morning
2: i i think we should definitely do this yeah
1: yeah
3: all right well let's um well to go back kind of on what we were talking about earlier about haunted theaters haunted theaters and ladies in red and ladies in white usually go hand in hand yeah (laughs) so maybe that's what we could look into on the next time we do one of these installments Actually, I actually like this
1: idea. It's a great idea to help promote each other, but also uh, I like having these, like, not so heavily deep, intense research, but like let's just talk weird. I, I think this is a lot of fun. Oh yeah,
2: totally Thank down for it.
1: All right. Yes, yes. Well, I I will round it out by saying I got tons of more stories uh, about Natchez, Mississippi, but uh, if you want to hear about those, just wait until December because I'm going to be on the road and I'm probably going to be broadcasting live a lot from Natchez while I'm down there. Uh, but maybe we can have you guys on for a, uh, uh, across the globe investigation. Who knows? But this is, uh, this has been an utter delight. I can't believe it's taken us this long to make it happen ever since I, you know, stumbled across the, uh, the green mushroom podcast network and all of the shows and all the content and all the people involved in that. Um, this is, uh, this is a worthy matchup. This is, this is a great Avengers spooky team <laughs> <laughs> or yeah. Justice league dark. Yeah. It's probably more appropriate. I would think,
4: <laughs> um, no,
1: this has been an absolute blast. So, uh, b- before we wrap things up, uh, of course I'm going to put all this in the show notes as we all will. Uh, but everybody kind of round out and let everybody know how to find each other. Brit, where do we find your stuff? <laughs>
0: I was gonna let them go first. Um, you can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Um, please, please don't don't go to our TikTok page. It's it's not really podcast related. Um, or you can email us over at brit b-r-i-t-t at staystrange.org. um i'm always up for people submitting spooky stories or shit that they've experienced um so that we can feature that on the podcast but that's how that's how you can reach me
1: awesome amy dave how about you guys
0: well
2: we are unp normalcy on facebook instagram and discord um you can find us in all those places. We have a Twitter, but we don't do anything on Twitter, so you'll be really bored if you go to our Twitter. Um, <laughs> and our website is umpnormalcy.com, and that's where you can get your Thunderpuss shirts. Um, and then we have also... Uh, you can email us at umpnormalcy at gmail.com.
3: Every year, um, we do a live show on Halloween night where we break out the spirit box, and we see what wants to talk and what our previous ones are those on youtube or are they on facebook
2: they're on facebook they're if you join our facebook group uh we we, you can join our page too we do it through both of them but yeah our facebook group and we do a live halloween event on facebook where we set up that spirit box and see who it wants to talk to
3: oh and we do it costumed
2: (laughs) yes and we do it costumed mine and dave's costumes are actually in the closet right now and we're ready to go
1: I am going as me this Halloween, because at this point I'm actually living the spooky, so I don't really feel the need to dress up for it anymore. <laughs> like.
2: We do themed costumes where all of us dress up as a theme. Last year we were cryptids that we had covered. Um, well, I got
1: my, I got my Mr. Me Seeks costume back there, I'll probably <laughs> wear that. But I'll I'll probably join you guys on Halloween, and, and honestly if you want to make it interesting a little bit later on in the evening, if you want to fire up multiple spirit boxes in multiple places Ooh. to see what happens.
3: Ooh. Yeah. Just cool. saying,
1: cause I'm staying in for Halloween. So I'm, I'm game.
2: Yep. Hell yeah. We, we start recording. We start doing it around 10 o'clock central time. Um, cause you yep. know, we have kids and they want their candy. So we have to go trick or treating. And
3: <laughs> yeah, it'll be Monday this year. So we'll, they'll probably take the kids out Sunday. Yeah. I don't know. So,
1: well, fantastic. Um, yes, let's uh, – I'll everybody make sure to add everybody's notes into the stuff. So I this, – this is too many goodbyes, so I'm just going to say goodbye.
2: Well, we don't know where you're at. Where can we find you? Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Flood. I host a podcast called XV Planis, which also doubles as a paranormal investigation team. You can find us at XV Planus on every social media platform, and that's E-X, the letter V, P-L-A-N-I-S, uh, butchered Latin of, of five planes. So there you go.
0: Hell yeah.
2: Awesomeness.
1: Thank you all so much for teaming up on this. I think this is a hoot, and I think this is, uh, I mean, even though this is kind of like a test run of all three of these shows hanging out together, I think there's actually something here that's worth revisiting every once in a while. I think this has been a hoot, and uh, we should we should do it again soon.
2: Oh, yeah, I agree. I agree.
0: And that is a wrap on this episode of the Primordia podcast, your source for strange. I really hope you guys liked digging into the hometown heebie-jeebies of the trio, the spooky trio of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network and discussing the spookier side of the mushroom with Dave, Amy, and Flood. It was a blast um, doing this episode with you guys, and if you're listening, much love, much love to you all. And for listeners, of course, as always, thank you so, so, so much for your support. It means the world and more to me. If you're interested in supporting the Primordia podcast, please check out our Ko-Fi or coffee. I'm not really sure, ko-fi page. Um, you can check that out at Ko-Fi. That is ko fi.com slash stay strange. You will find our page there. You can select your membership tier. All proceeds will go into establishing a home on wheels center hub for spooky shit for my dog Leia and myself. So if you're interested, just want to be transparent with you guys. Um, And, of course, it will go back into podcast production and so on and so forth. But remember, if you are someone strange or you know someone strange or if you've had a spooky experience, whether it's alien-related, a case of deja vu, unsettling synchronicities, something truly terrifying, I'd love to know, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out at Brit, B-R-I-T-T, at staystrange.org. Org or shoot us a message over on Facebook or Instagram. Links for those are in the podcast description. I really hope you guys are looking forward to Camp Strange and all that is in store for season two of the Primordia podcast. I appreciate you all, and remember, stay strange.